Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast, where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusala coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center. It's Sunday afternoon. Um, it's uh, actually comfortable today. It's supposed to be in the high 70s, low 80s. So what a change of pace this is. Well, the podcast you're about to hear is an interview I did with my friend Reverend Nori Ito, who is a Buddhist priest at a Japanese Pure Land temple in downtown Los Angeles. And we had a wonderful interview. Uh, I just got through listening to it again. And we covered a lot of territory. We talked about how he moved to America in the early 50s, how he didn't know if he wanted to be a priest or not, even though his father and grandfather had been priests in Japanese temples, Um, his school years, his ordination, his uh, work with the Buddhist Catholic Dialogue, starting the Buddhist Club at Occidental College, and last but not least, taking students from his temple to Hiroshima and Nagasaki to introduce them to the horrors of nuclear war. So again, we covered a lot of information. This particular podcast is about an hour and 18 minutes long. So set some time aside and listen if you'd like to my interview with Reverend Nori Ito about being a Buddhist priest in Los Angeles. This is Wednesday. It's a little bit after 3 o'clock, and I'm in downtown Los Angeles on 3rd Street, and I'm in a Japanese Buddhist temple, and I'm going to ask Reverend Nori Ito to pronounce it for me. Uh, Higashi Honganji Buddhist Temple. Oh, thank you. Um, Reverend Ito and I met years ago. Uh, we're, we're both involved with um, the Buddhist clubs. I'm at UCLA, and Reverend Ito's at Occidental College. We're also both part of the Buddhist Catholic Dialogue in Los Angeles. So we've come together many times, and I asked him if he wouldn't mind uh, doing an interview, and he said, I wouldn't mind. So I'm here today. And um, I'd like to start, my first question would be, uh, were you born a Buddhist, or did you come to Buddhism later in life? Well, first of all, I'd like to clarify that. Oh, I please. didn't say, I, di- I wouldn't mind, I said I'd be honored. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes, thank you. Well, thank you. That's, that's very kind. Uh, yes. Uh, well, uh, the, uh, uh, I was born a Buddhist. Uh, my father was a priest, and oh. uh, uh, my grandfather, on both sides, they were both priests. Uh, so I come from a long line of Buddhist uh, priests. Okay. Um, and for people listening, um, the word priest and monk are different. Uh, priests in the Japanese tradition are allowed to be married and have children and a wife. And, and you're married and have three children? Yes. Three children, okay. 
when, were you born in Japan or were you born in America? I was born in Japan. Okay, and when did you come to America?、Uh, I came with my family. My father was assigned to、uh, the temple in Los Angeles. Oh, okay.、Uh, he was assigned in '53. 1953. And、uh, we, the rest of the family, we、uh, stayed in Japan for a couple of years.、Mm-hmm. And he de- he realized that he couldn't go back to Japan right away, and so he called for us. And we came in '55. I was、uh, almost seven at the time. Okay. And was he happy about coming to America? He really wasn't. Okay.、Uh, to be honest,、uh, because、um, you know, we in our tradition, Jodo Shinshu tradition, we have a you know, we've had a married clergy ever since the beginning,、mm-hmm. so about 800 years of uh, uh, married clergy. Okay. And、uh, if well, he was the second son of his temple,、mm-hmm. so therefore、uh, he wouldn't take over. You know the temple of his birth, but、uh, for second, second and third sons, oftentimes what happens is they marry into another temple that doesn't have a son, or、uh, maybe work at our headquarters,、uh, you know, as a staff priest or something like that. And、uh, so he was working for a long time、um, for our mother temple in Kyoto,、mm. and being transferred to different areas,、uh, serving at different temples. But、uh, he happened to、uh, meet my mother's brother, and、uh, my mother. Well, my mother was、well, a kind of a strange situation where she was born into a temple with a lot of brothers and sisters,、mm-hmm. but she had an aunt and uncle who had no children, and so she was promised to them、uh, because she was like the second daughter, I see,、uh, fourth down, you know,、uh, from、uh, among all of the.、Uh, Children. Okay. And so she was promised to my aunt and uncle's temple, or、uh, her aunt and uncle's temple. Okay.、Uh, and uh, but uh, and so she grew up there. But be,、uh, being that there was no son,、um, eventually she was going. Well, she was going to be asked to marry someone who would come up, come in and take over the temple.、Mm. And so her older brother happened to be a friend of my father. They were introduced, and、uh, he. Uh, actually, well, he became、uh, the head priest of that temple,、mm-hmm. and it was around that time that、uh, his his、uh, father or father-in-law was still healthy, and so he was、uh, serving down in the Kyushu area, down way down south, and then also served up in Hokkaido, way up you know the northernmost island,、mm-hmm. and uh, uh, a well one of the. Uh, uh, Administrators、uh, of the Mother Temple came to see him one day and said,、uh, "We have a problem. Uh, we, we, uh, the, the priest at our temple in Los Angeles、uh, is getting set to come return to Japan, and we need someone to replace him. And so, will you go?" And he he actually said that、uh, he's not the right person because he can't speak a word of English. He actually his English teacher at Otan University was Dt Suzuki's wife. Wow, Beatrice Suzuki. Yeah, and he 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 said that he was the worst student, <laughs> and so he 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 wouldn't be of any use in Los Angeles. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Plus, he had、uh, he had been adopted into his his wife's temple, and that he had the responsibility to、uh, you know to take over that temple after his father-in-law、uh, retired,、mm-hmm. and so he can't go to Los Angeles. Well, so then they took no for an answer the first time, but they came back a few months later and said, "We really need you to go. Can you just go for one or two years?" And so he uh, uh, accepted the uh, appointment, came over by himself,、mm-hmm. 
And once he got here and got to meet the, the members of the temple and to see the situation for himself, he realized that he couldn't return right away. Mm. And that's when he called us uh, in, uh, two years later to join him. So, so he sensed a, a great need for yes. his services here. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, he may have liked Los Angeles once he got here. Any, I with think the so. Weather yeah. and, uh, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and then I think that the other thing was uh, this was back in the 50s. Yes. When the Japanese communities were still, uh, you know, kind of intact and, uh, 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 you know, uh, what do you call it, uh, very vibrant. Mm-hmm. And, and the first generation were still, uh, you know, in control mm-hmm. of the community and of, of the temples. Mm-hmm. And so you really didn't need to speak good English uh, to okay. get by. So he was so, probably living in a Japanese neighborhood. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, businesses yes. he frequented yes. spoke Japanese. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, yeah. Okay. So he got, uh, pretty much served his whole career without really speaking English. I mean, without having to speak English. Right. Huh? Uh-huh. Yeah. So when you came over, then, then you, um, I imagine, learned English. It would yes. probably be a lot easier Great. because we, you were young. Yeah. And you were in pretty much a Japanese culture, I would imagine within yes. the LA culture right okay. uh, it was a kind of uh, getting used to you know being in an English speaking community yeah. well, uh, in an in English speaking country uh-huh. but where Japanese was you know spoken okay. uh, at least at the temple and you know mm-hmm. uh, at home mm-hmm. so forth and uh, so I started first grade uh, you know in Los Angeles okay uh, and uh, went through high school so, so in, in Boyle Heights, the East Los Angeles. Oh, okay. So you were reading and writing English right from the get-go, right. as they say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing is, I think uh, my father realized that after maybe four or five years, and you know, the children getting used to life here, and uh, learning English quickly, and kind of starting to uh, put aside, you know, our, our native language, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and the culture and so forth, mm-hmm. that he realized that if, if we were in Japan, then I, I would automatically have been chosen to take over after my father mm-hmm. at the family temple. But in the United States, the temples aren't run, you know, in the, in the traditional way. And so when a minister or a priest uh, retires or passes away, then a new one is, uh, uh, you know, uh, found. Mm-hmm. And put into place, and so it's not a automatic succession from father to son. I see. And he realized that uh, I was just, you know, quickly becoming American, and mm-hmm. just kind of, uh, you know, didn't express any real interest in the temple, you know, mm-hmm. other than having to be there all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, I think, he made the conscious choice not to force it, mm-hmm. and not even to mention it, and and. You know, I came over at such a young age that I didn't know the Japanese system. Yeah, yeah. And so I just figured, well, he's giving me the freedom to, you know, be who I am, uh, to be who I wanted to be, and uh, to pursue whatever, you know, ambitions, dreams I had. Mm-hmm. So he never mentioned, uh, as I was growing up, that he would like me to consider, you know, the priesthood. I see. And, you know, coming into the temple. And so, I, uh, uh, Japanese also, the language, you know, I, uh, he, they want, my parents sent me to, we had Japanese language schools back in those days. Ah. And it was, you know, right in our neighborhood. So you would go to school, learn English, yes. and then you go to Japanese right. school to learn Japanese. Yeah. Nowadays, it's only on Saturdays. I see. But back in the uh, 50s, it was every day. Wow. And so we'd go to public school till 3 o'clock, 
and then maybe at four o'clock for uh, another couple of hours, hour and a half or so, we'd be in Japanese school. Mm. And I hated it. Hated <laughs> it. <laughs> I couldn't stand it. And I, I, all I could think of was, how am I going to get out of this? Yeah. Uh, because mo many of my friends didn't have that, you know, didn't have that obligation. And sure. so I only took two years of Japanese school, and okay. I was able to. Uh, find a way out. <laughs> and by the time I was in high school, my parents really still hadn't learned how to speak English, you know, fluently. And so I would talk to them in English, they would respond in Japanese, and that's how we were able to maintain wow. a conversation. Wow. Now, growing up in L.A. in the 50s as a Buddhist, did, did you feel any sense of prejudice or confusion? Because mm -hmm. I would imagine that most of the, the kids at school were probably Christian. Or some yes. Jews and yes. maybe some Muslims as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So, how did a, a Buddhist kid growing up in L.A. feel about being a Buddhist? It was well, you know, we lived in a, a, an area uh, where there were uh, other Japanese Americans and Japanese American Buddhists. Okay. And so many of my friends, uh, either through like Dharma school mm -hmm. or through youth activities or through sports. Uh, you know, came in and out of the temple. Hmm. The families were members and so did forth. The, did the temples have sports programs? Yes, we had, programs? Uh, we had uh, scouting programs. Okay. We had sports. You know, we had uh, we functioned not only as a temple but almost kind of as a community center. Hmm. Okay. And so there's a lot of cultural, uh, you know, activities, tea ceremony, you know, flower arrangement being taught and so forth. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, um, uh, so you know, it was it was comfortable as long as you were in the community, in the Japanese community. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. uh, or e you know, even in the neighborhood. Okay. You know, because uh, we were all accepted. You know, mm -hmm. the Japanese Americans were accepted by the other uh, ethnic. Uh, and were most of the Japanese Americans Buddhist in in your neighborhood? Uh, it was probably. I don't really know, but I think okay. it was probably about half and half. Half and half. Because okay. we actually had two. Uh, Japanese American Christian churches too. There was oh. a Free Methodist Church and there was a Baptist Church, okay. right in the same neighborhood, okay. uh, with uh, two Buddhist temples and a couple of like Shinto-based, uh, you know, religious organizations, Sonko Church and Tendikyo. Mm -hmm. And uh, but I would have to say though that um, you know. To, uh, admitting that I was a Buddhist, like outside of my community, mm -hmm. was something that I really didn't do. Uh, okay. And, and I don't know if it, I don't remember if it was a conscious uh -huh. thing, but it was something that you just kind of kept to yourself. Okay. You didn't wear it on your lapel. Yeah. And I see like my own children, you know, uh, what 40 years later. Yeah. And uh, things have changed. I think Buddhism has become much, you know, better understood, much more accepted, you mm -hmm. know, in today's society, especially in Southern California, mm -hmm. that they're very proud to be Buddhist, and they can, you know, announce to anybody, I am a Buddhist, uh, and and that's a, a very distinct difference mm -hmm. uh, between how I grew up. Okay. Now, when you went to college, mm -hmm. did you was there Buddhist clubs in college? No, there uh, weren't any yeah, Buddhist clubs. Uh, Occidental back in those days was still. Uh, uh, pretty strongly Christian. Okay. Uh, and it started out as a Presbyterian college. Oh, it did. But by the time I entered, uh, the formal ties with the church were cut. Okay. But they still had, you know, a very nice chapel, and they still had this requirement that every student had to take at least uh, 
one semester, I think it was, of Bible studies or a, a religious or philosophy, religion or philosophy course. Mm. And uh, so there was there were no Buddhist uh, groups on campus. Um, and if there was, probably that would have been the last group I would have joined anyway. <laughs> but uh, um, so, yeah, uh, I don't remember ever even stepping into the chapel okay. during the four years I was at Occidental. Okay. And, and what was the point in your life when you decided that it might be a good career decision mm-hmm. to be a Buddhist priest? Because mm-hmm. it sounds like your father didn't want to pressure you. Right. And, and, and the, um, the cultural pressure that you would have found in Japan wasn't here in Los right. Angeles. Mm-hmm. So what was the turning point for you? When did you decide it was the right thing for you to do? Well, if I can start a little bit Please. earlier, um, Please. like I get out of high school, I okay. graduate from high school and accept it to Occidental, and I feel as though that's kind of like my ticket out, out of the community, you know, out of the Japanese American community, out of the temple. And that would be going to college. Going to college, okay. and, and kind of like, you know, getting into so-called mainstream America yeah. for the first time in my life. And I remember thinking that uh, depending on, you know, how things go, you know, depending on how my life goes from that point, uh, I may, you know, uh, happen to find someone who is, uh, you know, uh, a Christian, you know, say a Christian, and even thinking that it would be, you know, it would be easy enough for me to convert to another religion if circumstances dictated. Okay. And uh, so I uh, went into college with uh, the intent of just leaving behind my, my background and, you know, uh, I started out in political science, actually, mm. thinking that maybe you know I could become a, a lawyer or something. And was that back in the 60s when this you were was, in college? Yeah, uh, I started in 67. Okay, so political science was a popular right, subject. Right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, and I spent a year in political science, but it was uh, well, you know, you're taking basically core cor- courses anyway. But as I started to think about it, I said, you know, I just don't think that uh, that's the the direction I want to go in. So I was thinking, well, what did I do well in high school? He said, well, um, you, know, you know, I think a lot of Asian kids, we did well in math. So I actually switched over to math and then took my first course, in, you know, first college course in math and realized that mathematics on a college level is a completely different animal from high school. <laughs> and uh, within one semester, I was thinking, ah, you know, I just don't have the, uh, the smarts to, to, you know, uh, succeed in this field, so I thought. Well, what's what's what takes like you know similar principles, but maybe a little bit easier for me to to succeed in. And I actually changed over to economics, mm. and I was in econ for uh, a year. But it just happened. Maybe I think you know it was a, we had a term system. You know, back in those days, so three terms. Uh, you know, during one academic year. I think it was the second term that I had the, uh, a free, you know, class. So I thought, well, just just to try, you know, just to see what it's like. I enrolled in a class on comparative religions, East and West, mm. uh, taught by uh, this professor by the name of uh, Franklin Jocelyn. He was the head of the religious studies department at the time. And I took the class without any um, uh, expectations, but. Uh, you know, he starts out in Hinduism, you know, starts in Asia, and he gets into Buddhism. And as he's uh, uh, talking about Buddhism and, and uh, you know, teaching us about uh, the Dharma, I realized, like, very quickly uh, that 
I can't be anything but Buddhist. Mm -hmm. You know, up until that time, I was thinking I could be anything. You know, I don't, I, I don't really identify myself as a as a Buddhist because uh, during my upbringing, even though I was, you know, we actually lived in the temple for a number of years, and I went to you know services every Sunday, and participated in youth programs, so forth, but really didn't have much interest, didn't really understand, you know, other than the real simple eightfold path, you know, six paramitas type of uh, Buddhism. And uh, so listening to him, it was, you know, as if I was receiving the Dharma for the first time in my life. Mm. And it's, you know, it's, I, it is ironic that he was a former Presbyterian minister, uh, but who did live in Japan and who um, studied at Waseda University in mm. Tokyo for a number of years, had a very keen um, uh, understanding and appreciation of uh, Buddhism. And uh, so that, that it was kind of like my conversion. You know, although I was already a Buddhist, it was like converting to Buddhism for the first time in my life. Wow. And so I went to him after that course uh, uh, was completed, and I said, Dr. Rashman, I'd like to consider switching over to religious studies. And he asked me, you know, what I what I'd done, what courses I'd taken. He says, well, if you focus on uh, religion, you know, your last year, then I think you can graduate. So he took me on as uh, his student mm. and uh, finished out, you know, uh, uh, Occidental uh, as a religious studies major. And then the other thing, uh, well, and this was like uh, uh, from 67 through to 71, and so it was during the height of Vietnam. And all of us, you know, the male students uh, were, well, I mean, you know, the whole campus, except for maybe the ROTC students, were anti-Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And we're all uh, thinking of ways that we can, you know, continue to avoid the draft yeah. after we graduate. Yeah. And I had friends who, uh, you know, ran away to Canada. I had a Japanese-American friend who, uh, on the day of his physical, in the morning, he drank a, a quart of shoyu or soy sauce Ooh. to raise his, you know, blood uh, blood pressure up. Yeah. It was given a deferment, you know. But we were all thinking of different ways of trying to get out of the draft, and the easiest was to continue with your education. Mm. And so I thought, well, maybe the safest thing for me is to try to get out of the country and uh, to maybe enter a graduate school uh, where I could, uh, you know continue my studies, avoid the draft, and, you know, live outside of the United States. And I had a friend who, uh, he was uh, he was not at Occidental, but we were friends from high school, and he was kind of pursuing a similar course. And so we talked about it one day. He said, well, why don't we just go to Japan and see what happens? So we wrote a, a letter to um, uh, the College of Our Denomination, uh, Otani University in Kyoto, and they accepted us provisionally. They said, just come over, and then you could take the uh, entrance exams. And, uh, you know, uh, we're pretty sure you can make it. You know. So we just um, bought a ticket, you know, sent a copy of our ticket to the draft board, and just left and just went to Japan. But at the time, sti I, I still wasn't thinking in terms of becoming a priest. Mm -hmm. I was thinking more in terms of... Um, uh, just continuing with my Buddhist uh, studies okay. and maybe going into teaching or something like that. Okay. Uh, and, but and then another interesting thing that happened while I was under the uh, guidance of Dr. Jocelyn 
is that he found out, you know, through our, just through our, our, our conversations that I was from a Jodo Shinshu, or Pure Land background. Mm-hmm. And so he encouraged me to do some of my independent studies on Pure Land. Okay. And this is like, you know, in the uh, late 60s, uh, and very few books on Pure Land Buddhism. You know, there are yeah. already quite a few, you know, D.T. Suzuki, uh, Yamaha, and so forth on yeah. Zen, yeah. and on, um, you know, uh, early Buddhism. Early Buddhism, yeah. the Vipassana right. or, mm-hmm. or Theravada. Right. But the you Pure know, Land yeah. is oftentimes overlooked, isn't right, it? Right, right. Yeah. And so I, uh, he encouraged me to do this, and so I went to the library, found some, you know, translations, sacred uh, books of the East, translations uh, by Max Mueller oh, and yeah. others. Yeah. And I, I read the three sutras, Pure Land Sutras, and, uh, you know, but what was really disturbing was kind of like the preface to the translation, in which uh, I think it was, if I remember correctly, it was Max Mueller who says, um, uh, I've, uh, I've done the translations uh, of the three Pure Land Sutras, but um, I'm disappointed with them. Something with, to that. With his translation? No, I'm disappointed with, with the, the content of the sutras. Ooh. That I don't feel that they are uh, in, in line with uh, the teachings of Shakyamuni Buddha. <laughs> uh, and, but I am doing this because I have so many friends in Japan who are Pure Land Buddhists. And I know them to be very fine people, and so I'm going to, you know, I, 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 I'm pre- uh, publishing these translations. Well, that's a kind of a. You know, it's certainly not a glowing, uh, you know, <laughs> recommendation or anything. <laughs> and then I read them, and I'm, you know, I'm having trouble trying to uh, understand and, um, you know, uh, verify that these are Buddhist texts. Yeah. Because my interest was Zen. You know, okay. my interest was, uh, you know, in early Buddhism, mm-hmm. in Shakyamuni Buddhism. And uh, so then it was, it was Dr. Jocelyn who kind of helps me out, uh, bails me out. Okay. And it's because he was uh, he was a student of uh, the New Theism movement, mm. uh, a student of Paul Tillich. Oh yes. And uh, so he, you know, his interpretation or his understanding of God is different from the traditional view. I see. Uh, they use terms, you know, as you probably know, like ground of our being or ultimate reality. Yes. You know, uh, in describing or or not describing, but referring to God, mm-hmm. Godhead, Godheit. Mm-hmm. And he says, maybe, you know, we, we, you're having trouble understanding Amida, Amida, or Amitabha. Maybe you can understand it in, you know, in these terms. Yeah. And that helps me, you know, tremendously. And so with a kind of a renewed uh, enthusiasm, I go to Japan, uh, enter uh, into a master's program, and uh, uh, find good teachers, you know, yeah. who are able to interpret uh, 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 the teachings and uh, and, you know, and who didn't apologize for the teachings, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, another interesting thing that happened yeah. though was uh, so my friend and I, you know, were in this um, college, you know, graduate uh, level. We're going through our studies, and we have some contact with uh, the Mother Temple because my father, you know, has let them know that we're there. So then they just kind of assume that. Well, Reverend Ito's son is here studying. He must be here studying to become a priest. Mm. So then they just kind of, you know, just uh, arbitrarily set up, uh, you know, uh, kind of a schedule for us. Mm -hmm. And they say, we arrived in September. 
and they say in November we're we're going to have you go through the ceremony. And I and my Japanese is, was really is that bad. the ordination ceremony? Yeah, that you're it, it happened. About? It turned out to be the ordination ceremony, but wow. my Japanese was so bad that I really wasn't understanding what they're they're saying. Yeah. Next thing we know, uh, we're you know we're led into um, you know we're, we're at the mother temple and they actually had this little barber shop right there, and I was kind of a you know a, 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 not a out and out hippie, but you know I certainly had long hair. But a child in the 60s, yeah, you right, had longer yeah, hair, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, during college, I had hair down halfway down my back. Okay. And my hair was, you know, kind of like what defined me. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so they they take me to the barber shop and they say, okay, we're going to shave your head. And that was a shock. <laughs> and you weren't expecting that at all. I wasn't really, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, they said some. Uh, you know, I, I did understand that it was some kind of ceremony, but okay. I really didn't know. Yeah. So, so we're ordained, and it was my friend who was a Japanese American, third generation like me, and then a, a Caucasian from Chicago who was studying at the same university. Okay. So the three of us went through ordination together, and the great, the good thing was, uh, it was in. The, the cold of winter, you know, ah. it was like the end of November that we went through the ceremony. Okay. So it's so cold that you know we're wearing ski caps, and so we could walk around town with our ski caps. And, and then uh, right after we had the ceremony, we we we'd go and you know, have lunch together. And two of us looked Japanese. One looked, you know, uh, for, uh, was a foreigner. Yeah. And we'd walk into a restaurant, and then we'd be speaking English. And then we take our ski caps off, and all three of us are bald, <laughs> and they don't know what to make make of us. But anyways, uh, you know, those are some of the. Well, it's 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 interesting because you sort of got ordained by mistake. Almost, even, yeah. You, even yeah. though your your whole family, generation after generation, mm -hmm. had been priests. Right. Mm -hmm. So now here you are with your ordination, mm -hmm. and did did you decide to keep it then? Did it make yes. sense to you? Um, at that point? Well, well, they explained it. You know, uh, our tradition. Um, the ordination, the initial ordination, is probably the simplest uh, ceremony of all the Buddhist, uh, uh, you know, uh, traditions. Okay. Because our founder, he happened to be ordained. He took or initial ordination at the age of nine. And uh, who, who was Shin, uh, Shindan Shonen? Shin, and yeah, and Shin, uh, and he was he was alive when? He was uh, well. He uh, his uh, uh, well from 1173 to 1262. Okay. So basically, 12th century. And and he uh, oh, just for people who have never heard of this mm -hmm. kind of Buddhism before, mm -hmm. uh, he he was the founder of your school of Buddhism. Although he certainly didn't see himself as a founder. Right. Is uh, you know in, in the same way that Chakamuni didn't see Seems himself so. as the founder of a religion exactly. or, or denomination or anything, but, yeah. but it, you know, a denomination formed or was established after his death. He was actually a student of Honen, Honen okay. Shonin, okay. who was the founder of the, the Jodo, or the Pure Land School of Buddhism. Okay, and this is and a different sect of Pure Land then? Right. It's the more that he started? Yeah. It's more and then, Yeah, and then... Uh, it's Shingang. called the Shin, Shingang? Uh, well, so uh, it's called Jodo Shinshu. Jodo Shinshu. Uh, in the United States, uh, uh, I think the most, most uh, what do you call it, accepted term is Shin Buddhism. Okay, mm -hmm. okay. And so, so he was uh, uh, eleven hundred. Uh, yes, okay. eleven seventy-three, twelve sixty-two, okay. so 12th, 13th century. And there had already been a Pure Land sect established in Japan. Yes, it was. Um, well, 
with Honan? Yes, Honan. Honan was actually his direct teacher. Oh, so okay. the school hadn't been there for long. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it was all uh, coming out of the Tendai or the Tiantai tradition. Yes. Uh, the Tiantai or Tendai in Japanese uh, was uh, one of the two major schools after the Nara period, okay. which is the initial period of Buddhism. And so Shingon is uh, uh, the esoteric, mm -hmm. uh, you know, school. Mm -hmm. Tendai, like yeah. a tantric kind of school. Yes. Uh, okay. And then uh, Tendai had some of that uh, esoteric, you know, aspect to it, but it was a very kind of comprehensive. I mean, I think it's probably the closest to uh, the kind of Buddhism that you would find in China. I see. Uh, which would include like Lotus Lotus Sutra, uh, Zen meditation, mm -hmm. and Pure Land. Okay. So it included all of that. Okay. And what happened in Japan is that Tendai was this, you know, uh, comprehensive uh, form of Buddhism, but uh, Dogen was a student at uh, the the Tendai monastery, took Zen out. Yes. And then Nichiren was a student of Tendai and took uh, the Lotus Sutra, you know, out. And then Honen and Shingon were also students at ten, uh, the Tendai monastery. They took the pure land, oh, I see. and so uh, whereas uh, in China it was, you know, it was never divided into different uh, denominations. Mm -hmm. It was kind of, you know, kept under one umbrella. Mm -hmm. In Japan, it, uh, you know, developed into separate schools. Separate and, schools. Yeah, okay. Separate teachings. Separate teachings. Okay. Wow. Thank you for that because yeah. it's, uh, for me, it's confusing. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Uh, but it, it's, it seems to me, after having read the little bit that I've read, mm -hmm. that that was a very important time in Japanese Buddhism. Yes. Uh, there was a lot of upheaval and right. transition going yes, on. Yes, uh, that's right. And some really remarkable people came out of that. Yes. Uh, yeah. I think uh, yeah, the, uh, many of the great you know, Buddhists uh, came out of that Kamakura period. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. so, so now you're in Japan, and you've gone through this sort of simple ceremony, mm -hmm. one of the right. most simple, you said. Mm -hmm. and, and um are you thinking about not going back to the States, or do you have more studies to do in Japan? Uh, well, um, you know, that was like uh, within six months of our arrival in Japan. Within six months, you've become ordained. But it's like <laughs> initial ordination. Initial, yeah. first ordination. And, and okay. you know, I, I was going to say that Shindan, because, uh, well, there's no real, I mean, there's no like um, definitive reason why he was ordained at such a young age. Okay. But he had, what, one thing was that he was orphaned. Mm. at an early age and that was one of the contributing factors okay. but at age nine he he is ordained and he enters the monastery yeah and so we have a tradition uh, in our temp, uh, in our denomination of ordaining uh, uh, the first sons mm. at the age of nine okay and so uh, you don't have to you know studied much you don't have to have done much it's it's really the first step it's the okay. first you know, commitment that you make yeah. towards be becoming a, Buddha, a student of, Buddha, of the Buddha. Okay. So that's the way they explained it to me. They said it's you know, it, 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 there's no responsibilities okay. attached. So to you didn't have to run a temple right, or right, any of like lead uh, right. services mm -hmm. or anything. Yeah, you can wear okay. the simple robes, but you okay. couldn't teach. You couldn't do anything. You know, uh, okay. uh, it's just the first step. The first step. Yeah. Okay.
it took me another three years uh-huh. uh, to go uh, to the next step. Okay. Right? Well, actually, to decide to go to the next step, and then to you know actually do the full ordination. Okay, so you so during those three years, mm-hmm. you were still deciding if it right. felt right, mm-hmm. if it was the path you wanted to take. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. And and was there a point where you said, yeah, this is it? And well, I'm I go think you know, part of it was uh, I was in you know a master's program, uh, and I thought that. You know, in order for me to go on and you know teach, you know, in academia, mm-hmm. that I would, you know, I would have to get my doctorate. Okay. But I was struggling so much with just the masters that I thought, ah, you know, it's probably overstretching to mm-hmm. think that I could become, a, you know, a teacher on, a, on say, the college level. Yeah. And that uh, maybe being a priest would be the, you know, the alternative. Okay. The other thing is. Um, I, I, I don't know if you felt it, you know, yourself, but in the United States, we have a, we kind of, um, well, there's a kind of a, well, I guess, you know, what I'm trying to say is that clergy of any kind mm-hmm. are looked at with uh, higher standards. Yes. And so, you know, uh, you're you're kind of, you know, Forced into being uh, more disciplined right. in the way you live your life. Yes, because exactly. you're a clergy. Right. You don't have as many options. Right. And you know, I was pretty wild <laughs> <laughs> growing up in high school and college, and I would, you know, kind of watch my father and see how he lived. Yeah. And one of the things was, uh, as you know, when we were young, he would often take us on a like a vacation mm-hmm. to Reno. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, not Reno, Lake Tahoe. Lake Tahoe. Okay. And you know, and and so very nice place to go. You sure. know, daytime we can enjoy, you know, hiking and you know, things like that. But I realized that at night he goes uh, elsewhere. He goes to the casinos, mm. right? And that's kind of one of the reasons why he liked Lake Tahoe yeah. as a kind of a family vacation spot. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't so much that he was really into gambling, but he 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 liked to drink uh-huh. and. Uh, just kind of, you know, uh, maybe just to get away from the pressures of being at the temple. Sure, sure. And so one, on one occasion, maybe the third time we were there or something, he, he's in the casino and he happens to meet uh, a person from Los Angeles, not a member of the temple, but someone that he knows, you know, in the community. Mm. man comes up to him and says, Oh, Ito Sensei, you know, Reverend Ito, gee, you know, I, I never thought I would see you here. <laughs> I didn't think that you, you people enjoyed this kind of thing. Uh-huh. And that was a really embarrassing experience for my father. It was. And okay. he never went back. He, uh, uh, the only time he would, like, say, go to Las Vegas or something is if he had a visitor from Japan you know, that he would uh, take. But, you know, but I, I watched that and I, I saw, you know, the kind of the struggle that he, the inner struggle that he was having. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't think I can do that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that I want I want to mm-hmm. you know have to like live according to these stringent uh, you know uh, rules, and so that was one of the the reasons you know why uh, it was, uh, you know I never thought of the priesthood as a, as a, a career. And what age were you at this point? Do you remember um, when you were in your master's program? Uh, it was probably about 22, 23. Oh, yeah. yeah that's so, so young to yeah. think about right. living right. a straight and narrow life. Yes, that's right. Yeah. 
And so, but then, you know, what happens is in Japan, like here in the United States, uh, all the all the priests are called sensei. Mm-hmm. You know, so ito sensei, you know, kusawa sensei. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that whether you're in the temple or whether you're out, you know, walking the streets, you're always ito sensei. Always sensei. So it's always kind of like you're just, you know, you're, uh, you know, this, you know, we call it, uh, I mean, there is, you're, you're, you're not just a regular person. That's right. Whereas in Japan, they don't use the term sensei for priests hmm. uh, for some reason, you know. Uh, so the, uh, sensei is re- uh, is a title that's uh, used for doctors and for teachers hmm. primarily, May- and maybe like politicians, mm-hmm. you know, uh, upper echelon politicians, mm-hmm. uh, but not for priests. Hmm. And so you could be walking down the street and you're just ito-san, you know, mystery ito you know. mm-hmm. Uh, unless you're performing, you know, a, a ritual, a service, or something, then of course, you know, they they would use a, an appropriate title. Mm-hmm. And I met these wonderful, you know, people, uh, both teachers at the college as well as priests at the Mother Temple, who kind of took me under the, their wings and uh, taught me the chanting and all of these things. And we'd go out, and they they were able to like kind of like separate, you know, their professional life from their personal life. Nice. To be, uh, and you know, in our tradition, our, our uh, you know, Jodo Shinshu uh, uh, tradition allows us to do that, sure. you know, to get married and have family and so sure. forth. And so I thought, well, if they could do it, then maybe I could do it also. Okay. And so it was meeting these people, these great teachers in Japan, that uh, gave me the kind of the confidence. And uh, they allowed you to see how to do it. Right, you couldn't figure quite out how to, yeah. how to live both kinds of lives That's at the right, same right. time. Yeah, I mean it's it's not even really like uh, a conscious, you know, I effort to to, debu- uh, to separate between your your uh, career, yeah. or, you know, your profession as a priest and yeah. your everyday life. Yeah, but that um, they just really were able to be themselves. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, the, uh, if I was, you know, I came to Buddhism late in life. Mm-hmm. I was 30, mm-hmm. 28, 30 mm-hmm. when I found out about Buddhism. Oh. And uh, and I was in my 40s when I got ordained. So mm-hmm. so if, if, if I had been in my early 20s, I don't think I would have even thought of it as mm-hmm. an option. Mm-hmm. Because in my 20s, I was sort of wild right. uh, and having a good time. Mm-hmm. And then as I got older, I saw that it was pretty empty stuff. It mm-hmm. didn't really matter that much. So now you're you're uh, you're you have your first ordination mm-hmm. and you've got your master's degree. You're not quite sure whether you want to go to PhD. You decided, mm-hmm. well, maybe I'll, I'll be a priest, mm-hmm. and you figured out how to live in the world and live at the temple at the same time, right? Because you, these people took you under the wing. Right. So at that point, did you come back to America, or did yes. you, you you did? Okay. Uh, I finished my uh, master's. I finished the the you know training mm-hmm. uh, for the priesthood. Mm-hmm. And got my full ordination, okay. and then I, I guess I communicated with the temple and said, uh, you know, I would consider accepting the p- position mm, okay. uh, as a, as a uh, you know priest at the temple. Yeah. And um, I, I think I was probably the first uh, priest at uh, any of our temples uh, who was a native English speaker. Okay. And so just that alone was enough, you know, to, um, you know... To make you a good yeah. candidate? Right. You, you had a, a yeah. skill right. that mm-hmm. was necessary yeah. or useful. Yeah. yeah. Although I wasn't anywhere near ready. Yeah. Well, now, this is an interesting point, too, because a lot of people think, well, 
once you become ordained, mm-hmm. you, it's all done. Mm-hmm. But but generally speaking, when I in my own case and uh, the other people I've talked to, mm-hmm. it's not all done. It's just the beginning. Right. And exactly. so now you needed to learn mm-hmm. the workings of the temple. Right. So when you were hired as the priest of the mm-hmm. temple, did you start off at the bottom and then yes. you had to sort of work right. your way up? Yeah. Uh, at the time, we had already three priests, including okay. my father. Okay. Uh, so I had two older, you know, two um, what we call senpai, you know, mentors. Okay, so they had uh, seniority. Right. And, and yeah. so I was at the bottom of the totem pole. Okay. And, uh, uh, you know, yeah. uh, just, it took me maybe a good five years to get comfortable. Okay. To feel as though I was um, contributing. Yeah. yeah. Well, and hopefully people listening to this will, will see that if they've read a book on Buddhism, and have decided that they want to be a Buddhist clergy, mm-hmm. uh, it surely doesn't happen overnight. Right. There's, uh, there's the education part, there's the practice part, mm-hmm. and then there's the, the, the training part mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. goes on forever. Right. <laughs> That's right. So as you um, were the priest at the temple, then you, did you marry your wife from the temple? Did, um, did you meet her here? Or well, actually, temple? she was... Uh, uh, Member of a, another temple. Another temple. Okay. Yeah, but we had a uh, an active youth program, uh-huh. high school, basically high school kids, mm. and uh, the temples in Southern California, they would, you know, they they had this. Well, we still have a um, like a league okay. association, and uh, uh, so we'd have all these activities, uh, seminars, and sometimes social activities, retreats, you know, conferences, things like that. And my wife happened to be the advisor of uh, uh, the youth group at the West L.A. Temple, mm. uh, you know, near UCLA. Okay. Cause she, well, she, she actually grew up in Gilroy, California, which is near San Jose. Yep, it's I know right where that is. The sure. garlic capital. The garlic Gilroy. capital, yes. that's right. Right, so she grew up there, but uh, she went to UCLA, okay. and after she graduated, she decided to stay, mm. and, uh, found a job, and, uh, and found the temple and started, you know, uh, becoming active and eventually became the advisor. Mm-hmm. And uh, fr- a friend, uh, a, a priest at the Nishonganji Temple, uh, we were in Japan together, mm-hmm. got to be friends, and uh, so we were like the respective advisors for our, I mean the advisors for our respective chapters. And we would go to these events together. And he knew Janet from, uh, because he was from San Francisco, and so uh, you know the districts were closer. So he knew Janet, even though she was a lot younger. So he introduced me to her. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing is, like, um, she, you know, we all wear, like, name tags. Yes. And so they misspelled her last name. Mm-hmm. And her last name was Sakai, S-A-K-A-I. But they spelled it S-E-K-A-I. And, and I've never seen a last name you know, uh, that's written S-E-K-A-I because S-E-K-A-I in Japanese means world oh. or like Mother Earth. Oh. You know? And so I looked at the name tag and I said, gee, that's a, you know, I've never seen <laughs> that name before. And, and it just kind of stuck in my mind. I don't know, maybe her, you know, her uh, other features stuck in my mind as well. <laughs> but uh, the name certainly did. Sure. Then I found out, you know, after I saw her the next time that it was a misspelling and, and she had a more ordinary last name. But that's how we met. And is in in the culture is mm-hmm. is marrying a priest a, a good thing to do? 
Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes people say marrying politicians is good, or marrying lawyers and doctors is good. Is, is marrying a priest considered to be a good uh, I think that, uh, marriage move? Yeah, for for the ord- you know for the regular member mm-hmm. you know who's not like uh, you know involved uh, you know in in maintaining the temple like yeah. Yeah, on the board of directors or something who doesn't know all the ins and outs mm-hmm. would consider it to be a good thing. Okay, but those who are like close. And who you know know of the struggles you know uh, that, how much that, work yeah, it is yeah, yeah. And, and how many how much sacrifice you know the ministers make and so sure. forth sure. probably steer their children away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, it, one of the things uh, I guess uh, uh, as far as her parents were concerned is um, you know and you see this in your uh, communities too but you know a lot of um, marrying out of you know your ethnic uh, community, yeah. and so my my wife was the third uh, child mm. of, of, of four, and and her older brother and her older sister had already married outside, mm. you know, outside of the community, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and her younger brother was or, uh, getting set to marry, you know, uh, a Caucasian also, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so when. Janet went to her parents and said, "I'm thinking of marrying, you know, Norito." They were, you know, basically overjoyed because I was a Japanese American. Sure. Uh, the interesting thing, though, was her grandmother on her father's side. Mm-hmm. Her both grandparents were devout Seventh-day Adventists. Wow. And they they were Seventh-day Adventists from Japan. In, in Japan, uh-huh. they came over, you know, and, and continued, you know, in their faith. And uh, so Janet takes me to meet her grandmother, and she sees me and says, oh, and she's so happy. And she says, oh, you know, you're marrying, you know, uh, someone from our community, very overjoyed. But so then we have the wedding, and, you know, of course, her grandmother's there. And she sees me coming out in my Buddhist robe mm-hmm. because I was already a priest. And, and, you know, that was a big shock to her. Was there a little bit of tension there? A little bit, but then what happened was uh, she accepted our marriage very graciously. Oh, wonderful. And, and then every time that we went to see her, you know, the other thing that she enjoyed was the fact that I could speak Japanese because none of her children, her grandchildren could speak Japanese and none of their spouses could speak Japanese. So here, you know, I, I come along and I could speak to her in Japanese. So she liked that about me. She wasn't real happy about the Buddhist part, <laughs> and so every time we, you know, we'd, we'd meet and have some time for conversation, she would bring out her books and her pamphlets. Of oh, religion, yeah, and so. she would uh, try to, you know, make me see, you know, the the value of her tradition. Yeah, and so actually, in a sense, it was my first uh, interreligious dialogue. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, now to, to jump ahead a little bit, mm-hmm. you're, you uh, are the director of the Buddhist Club mm-hmm. at Occidental. Yes. And so when you went there, they didn't have one. Uh, has there been one there for a while? Uh, yes. Well, I was the, I mean, well, I, um, I came along and started the first group. Oh, you did? Yeah. And okay. so this was back in uh, 1987 or uh-huh. so. So it's was there any resistance years. from the from the university? No, not at all. Not at all. Okay. Um, you know, uh, there was a, a man by the name of Doug Gray who was a congreg- 
Congregationalist Christian mm -hmm. who was the head of the department or who head of the uh, religious life. Okay. And uh, they had already had they already had a Newman group, you know, Catholic group, uh, uh, Hillel, uh, Jewish group, mm -hmm. uh, maybe three Christian groups. Mm. They even had uh, uh, Latter Day Saints okay. and Christian Science okay. was already there too. And uh, I happen to have, I happen to have had, uh, or had, I happen to have known the person who was the Catholic advisor I see. through a community. And so she knew that I was, a, a, you know, an alum. And so she called me up and said, you know, I think you know, we've been looking at our, our student list, and we see there's an increase, increasing number of Asian students, many of who, you know. Uh, put Buddhism as their uh, uh, background religion. Mm -hmm. And so we think that it's time to start a Buddhist group, and so would you be interested? Mm -hmm. And so I, I jumped at the opportunity, and I, so I went and then got the list from them. And it was maybe, I don't know, 30 or 40 Asian students, uh, some of who, who were you know, Japanese-American, and who I imagine probably went through the you know, Young Buddhist Association, you know, the youth group, uh, uh, youth groups at our temples. Mm -hmm. So I sent notices to all of them and said, you know, we're going to look into starting up a, a group and so please come. And I think uh, the first notice I sent out, um, I only got like one or two students that came. Mm. And there just wasn't much interest. Yeah. And uh, But then they supplied me with another list and it was students who, uh, of, you know, who were non-Asian mm -hmm. but who had a, an interest in Buddhism or in meditation. So I sent out notices to them and they came. Yeah. And so basically over like almost 20 years of uh, being you know, the advisor there, uh, I probably had, you know, I can probably count the number of Asians that have been, you know, uh, uh, part of the group. Okay. It's primarily been a non-Asian group. And so it leads me to, 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 to believe that uh, in the West mm -hmm. there's a, a real strong interest yes. in Buddhism mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and, and meditation, I guess, in particular. Mm -hmm. yeah. do, you, do, you, do you think it's important to have a Buddhist presence on, on campus? Uh, I definitely think so. Okay. Yeah, and I, I, uh, when we, when I first started out in '87, okay. uh, the Buddhist group was the smallest group, you know, of all the faith groups that were on campus, by far. Yeah. We only had like you know, maybe five or six, and and there were weeks when I'd go and nobody would show up. Yeah. But eventually, you know, as time passed, the group, you know, started to get larger more active, you know, and students would stay with me the whole four years that they were there and, uh, you know, really become totally, you know, truly Buddhist yeah. within two years. Wow. And, uh, you know, start living a Buddhist lifestyle that surpassed my own, you know, so-called okay. Buddhist lifestyle yeah. in, in many ways. And uh, uh, about maybe two years ago, I looked at the lists of all the faith groups on campus uh -huh. and the Buddhist group, at least you know, the, the, in numbers, yeah. we were like the number two group. Wow. Uh, next to the Catholic group. Wow. And so, you know, we've grown from our humble beginnings. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's amazing. I mean, we, we'd have maybe like, at the start of the year, we'd have like uh, 40 students on the list, uh, you know, in a, on a campus of 1,600 students. So it's, a, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's uh, you know, it's had its impact. Yeah. Uh, on on uh, Occidental. 
Well, and, and that I can segue into this then, maybe from that too, because I've spoken at your temple yes. a couple times, and yes. I've always enjoyed it. And when I come here, I've noticed that there were um, uh, a lot of Japanese mm-hmm. and, and a lot of uh, older Japanese, mm-hmm. and but also younger Americans, Westerners mm-hmm. here too, yeah. learning, learning about Buddhism. Mm-hmm. If somebody's listening to this mm-hmm. and and feels a desire to go to a Buddhist temple. Um, do you think they should be anxious about that when when somebody comes here for the first time, say mm-hmm. a Westerner comes, mm-hmm. and 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 you know they don't know anything about the protocol? Mm-hmm. Do you is is do you make them feel comfortable? Do you give them information? Do you what the schedule is? Mm-hmm. We try, you know, uh-huh. we try to the best of our abilities to welcome uh, new people, guests okay. to the temple, and uh, we have a service book. You know, in the pews, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, explains the service. You know, the, the format, oh. uh, the the symbolism behind. You know, the things that we do. You know, uh, what is incense offering for, and so forth. Okay. And uh, so that if they just read a few of those pages, then um, you know they would at least know what's going on and why. And so they wouldn't really even need to ask a whole lot of questions if they just looked at that book. Right. Uh-huh. They would. Yes. Okay. And, and then we've been trying to um, uh, do more kind of like discussion, you know, informal, instead of like, you know, the priest sitting, standing up there and, you know, kind of like preaching and mm-hmm. quotes, just making it much more interactive and, uh, you know, to maybe, you know, sit in, well, sit in the hondo, I mean, in the main sanctuary, and uh, I would talk, but would invite questions or, you know, discussion. Okay. Or on uh, when we have a smaller group, we would even come in here and just okay. have a discussion. And just sit around the table right. and ask questions mm-hmm. and things. So, so, so it would take a little bit of courage, but mm-hmm. once the process started, it would feel familiar pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and everybody I've met here has been so uh, courteous and gracious, and I oh. feel like uh, uh, an old friend every time I come to visit. Mm-hmm. So it's wonderful. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, about maybe three months ago, we had some uh, students from Loyola Marymount. Oh yeah. And uh, you know, I guess they were writing a report or something, and they came. And so I had a chance to talk with them and you know answer some questions after uh, the gathering was over. And uh, they were both uh, raised Catholic, and you know they grew up going to to church. And they said you know that uh, being here, it, it felt so comfortable. Mm. Because it, it reminded them of their their you know their mm-hmm. childhood. Yeah. You know, I guess the altar kind of looks. Uh, I mean, it's ornate in the same mm-hmm. way that a Catholic church is. Sure. And uh, we have the chanting, or you know, well, it's completely different. But uh-huh. uh, anyways, they felt very comfortable here. Wonderful. And and speaking about the Catholics and the Buddhists, now the Los Angeles Buddhist Catholic Dialogue has been going on since 1989, and you've been a member for a while. When did you become interested in the Buddhist Catholic Dialogue? Um, I think uh, it was through the encouragement of two people. Okay. One was Michael Kersey, oh, yes. who was uh, uh, the uh, director at Occidental College of Religious Life for a number of years. Okay. And who I, you know, uh, learned so much from, and and then the other was uh, Reverend Maskudani, mm. who was my, you know, uh, mentor at Senshin. Yes. And the two of them were active, and okay. So, yeah. But I have to admit that I haven't been a very good member over the last few years. 
but I have the next meeting on my calendar. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard to go to every meeting, that's for sure, because uh-huh. they, they actually happen every month. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I know my schedule, and I'm sure your schedule yes. sometimes doesn't permit you right. to attend. Mm-hmm. But for somebody listening to this who, who's never thought about Catholics and Buddhists coming together, uh, do you, after being a part of it, do you think it's a good thing? Do you think it helps to understand the other? I think it's a, a wonderful thing. Okay. Um, I, I've learned so much from, from the experience myself. And uh, I think that because it's a group that has been in existence for a long time, uh-huh. uh, people can be quite frank with each other. Yeah. And uh, so it's, you know, like I, I, I'm involved in a, a number of other circles where it, when you don't know each other well enough, you tend to be too cautious. Yes. And so you don't you don't ask the penetrating questions or you know yeah. uh, so that it's just kind of superficial. It's just people coming together, you know, uh, saying good things about each other and, and saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Buddhist Catholic dialogue, I think, it has a lot more substance, and it uh, really is a dialogue, yeah. uh, a, a meaningful dialogue. Yeah. One one of the um, things that I learned from you at one of the Buddhist Catholic dialogues we attended was the fact that every year you take students to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, when I look at the news today and read the newspapers and go online, I see everybody wants nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. And we're both from the 60s. Yes. And we, there was a whole different understanding about nuclear weapons in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that seems to have changed for some reason. Could you just talk a little bit about why you decided to do that? Uh, what was your inspiration to take students to Japan and see those two places? And then what is their reaction? What do you see and what is their reaction? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I've been uh, leading this, the uh, youth group to Japan for maybe the last for about 10 years now, over 10 years, I think. In the first few years, uh, it wasn't that we avoided those places, but we just went, you know, we went to other historical uh, areas, uh, more, you know, more um, that have significance to our teaching or to our, you know, history. Like ancient Buddhist temples? Yes. Uh, okay. Uh, areas where the founder lived and, I you know, where temples were established and so forth. Okay. But... Um, uh, one year, I, dec- I thought that it would be a, a you know great experience uh, to to, uh, to take the kids to Hiroshima. And and had you been there before? I had been there. Um, I was there as a student. Okay. So it had been many many years you know since I had the ch- chance to revisit. Okay. And well, one of the interesting things about um, what happened in my life uh, with uh, regard to Hiroshima yeah. was. Uh, when I was a, when I decided to you know go to Japan to study back in '71, I had the chance to uh, stop. You know, back in those days, uh, they had flights that stopped in Hawaii and then went to Japan. Mm. So I stopped in Hawaii and stayed there for, for a few days. And I went to the Pearl Harbor Memorial oh, first yeah. time in my life. And I was there and, and um, uh, paying my respects. And although I Totally identified myself as an American. I, you know, also acknowledged the fact that I was uh, I was born in Japan. Mm-hmm. That you know my long time long term history was you know Japan. So mm-hmm. that I had to identify myself at least to a small part as a Japanese. 
and you know being at Pearl Harbor and thinking to myself how could you know the people of Japan you know, my country have done this to Americans hmm. or to, to people yeah. feeling this tremendous guilt you know at the same there, time it must have been a really interesting dichotomy for you mm -hmm. to you know uh, American Japanese mm -hmm. Japanese coming over attacking America mm -hmm. and your allegiance lies in both places. Right. I mean, and, and I'm sure that that's exactly what happened with the Japanese that were living in Hawaii yeah. and on the West Coast, you know. Yeah. And maybe uh, to a certain extent that's what uh, kind of like um, enabled them to go quietly into the camps. I see. Because there was this kind of underlying guilt, you know, of, of being Japanese and, you know, how could Japanese how could our people have done something like that? Just to, uh, and, and this is a digression, so people listening, excuse me for digressing, but um, did Buddhism go to the camps? Did they have, did they have Buddhist service mm -hmm. in the camps? When? Um, not at first. Not at first. Uh, in fact, you know, uh, what happened was when the FBI came, started rounding up all of the Japanese, mm -hmm. uh, the first people that they, they uh, arrested and took away were the leaders of the Japanese, Amer Japanese, Japanese American communities, and, and that included clergy. It included Buddhist priests, and included like Japanese language teachers, mm -hmm. uh, the heads of you know the different organizations mm -hmm. and so forth. But the Buddhist priests were among the first locked up and taken away, and they were uh, taken away uh, to these camps that uh, uh, you know that. Uh, people don't really talk about because they're so small but they were like the most dangerous well you know considered to be the most dangerous people from the American government point of view mm -hmm. and uh, they weren't released into the into the you know regular camps for uh, maybe over a year so mm -hmm. although there are many you know Buddhists who were relocated to Manzanar and to Jerome and you know to the big camps mm -hmm. Uh, the clergy weren't available because they were all locked up somewhere, in, you know, almost like a, you know, maybe not maximum security, but almost like in prison-like conditions, wow. until you know uh, the threat was uh, over. I mean, you know, almost kind of like Guantanamo in yeah. a sense. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Think about, but so that the Christian clergy were there in the camps uh -huh. and they were holding services, but the Buddhists, uh, there were very few Buddhist priests who were available in any of the camps. And finally, they were released, and you know, uh, they were given the, uh, uh, the, the, the 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 permission to hold services and so forth, okay. so that uh, religious, you know, services according to Buddhist tradition were, uh, you know, maybe in the uh, from the second year on, uh, allowed in the camps. Mm, that's fascinating. I had no idea. That's interesting. So we just did. Uh, we have a group called the Nikkei Interfaith uh, Fellowship. Okay. And we just did, we just put together a book. In fact, I'll give you a copy. Oh, thank you. Yeah, but, thank uh, you. Uh, well, it's, it's a, more like a pamphlet. Okay. But stories of internment, uh, stories of Buddhists and Christians working together, and so forth. And where we're sitting right now, your your temple's on Third Street, yes. which is uh, I guess in Little Tokyo or pretty close. And isn't there a new museum that yes. just opened mm -hmm. up? Relatively recently, yes. the documents, yes. the the uh, the plight of the uh, mm -hmm. people who were incarcerated. Yeah, uh, the Japanese American National Museum. Okay, they call it Janum. Okay, and they're right on the corner of First and uh, Central, uh -huh. and they're 
their their first exhibit space uh, was actually the uh, old Nishi Honganji Temple, mm. which the city uh, originally condemned, mm. but I guess they were able to retrofit it so that they, it's usable now. Okay, oh, good. good. But they also built a bigger uh, second wing. I see. And have uh, uh, both uh, permanent as well as uh, what do you call it uh, permanent exhibits as well as traveling exhibits. Traveling exhibits. Okay. Well, now let's go back to Hawaii, mm -hmm. and you're faced with this sort of dilemma. Right. You, you have allegiance to America, mm -hmm. you have allegiance to Japan, mm -hmm. and you're looking at the memorial, mm -hmm. uh, and and you must have you know twist or pulled on your heart yes. in a very interesting right. way. And a few well, and then I went. I go to Japan, and, uh -huh. you know, student there, living there. And a couple of years later, I had a chance to visit Hiroshima. Yeah. And it was it was almost like the same experience, but it was but the opposite. opposite. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm going through Hiro, you know, the the uh, uh, the memorial, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, the uh, the museum mm -hmm. where they have all the you know the artifacts and the photos, the terrible photos and so forth, and feeling this tremendous guilt because now I'm identifying myself as an American. <laughs> and it's kind of yeah. like, you know, yeah. I mean, I, and it's kind of like the karma of the Japanese American. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. That, that that's what we have to live with. Yeah. But it, it's such a, 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 a moving experience that you go through it and, you know, you just can't help but, like, you know, have this, I mean, you know, well, uh, ha have a commitment to do something, you know, I, I know that I can't change the world, but, mm -hmm. you know, in my small way, to do something, uh, at least to tell the stories, yeah. uh, to make people understand how terrible you know, nuclear arms are. Mm -hmm. So you had started taking the students over mm -hmm. to Japan, right. and, and the second or third year, mm -hmm. you decided, well, let's go yeah. to mm -hmm. Hiroshima and Nagasaki right. and, and introduce the students mm -hmm. to this history, this, this part of history. Right. And it, what, what was their take on that? Because if they were young, mm -hmm. they probably, even, even like Chernobyl mm -hmm. wasn't in the reality. Mm -hmm. I think, that, that's, I think right. that's the 70s or 80s. Mm -hmm. So what was their impression when they saw mm -hmm. the, the devastation mm -hmm. and, the, uh, and the absurdity mm -hmm. of nuclear weapons? Yeah, I think that, uh, of course, you know, all, all the kids have uh, you know, learned history, yeah. and so they knew they knew that you know World War II happened and that the atomic bombs were dropped and so forth. They knew that uh, you know intellectually, yeah. but to go through and to actually see you know the suffering, the photographs and uh, um, you know these uh, uh, these artifacts that were found that you know twisted pieces of metal mm. that you just unimaginable you know the the heat that must have been generated to. To, you know, the, the, or these uh, iron doors that were just, you know, blasted off. Uh, that, uh, and then also, I think one of the most moving things is uh, seeing the videos of uh, survivors who talked, you know, in their own, uh, using their own words mm. of, of uh, the horrific conditions that uh, they had to endure. Or, or, and they also have these uh, drawings. Uh, I guess it was a therapeutic, you know, to get these survivors to, to draw uh, what they remember. Mm -hmm. And just, I mean, it's the, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it, it, it depicts horrors that, you know, are just unimaginable. Yeah. And is there a room with bones or something, some kind of... Uh, yes, well, uh, that was in Nagasaki. That was in Nagasaki. Yeah, uh, we, I took a group of students in Nagasaki and 
we didn't have a place to stay and we you know we're on a limited budget and so we got permission to uh, stay at our temple mm. in Nagasaki only maybe a mile away from the station and it's a small temple but they have a, a courtyard in front you know kind of a garden and they have this big uh, monument it's about a 10-foot monument mm. and inscribed are four uh, Chinese characters Hisan, mm. uh, Hikaku Hisan and translated you know into English it would mean no nukes, no war. Mm. Yeah, so no nukes, no war. Uh, and uh, the, the priest came, you know, came out and explained um, the monument <coughs> uh, to us. And, and he, he, what he wanted to emphasize, is it doesn't say Hansen, <coughs> um, the word for like anti-war, mm -hmm. like anti-war movements and so forth is Hansen. Uh, and but it says it doesn't say Hansen, it says Hisan, no war, not anti-war. Mm. And uh, the reason why is because when you say anti, then you're on one side, and you're protesting against other people, mm -hmm. you know, people who uh, disagree with you. Mm -hmm. you know, so in this case, you know those who favor nuclear arm, arms or who who advocate for war. Mm -hmm. uh, you're just putting yourself, you know, on the other side and just kind of criticizing, you know, from a, a kind of a lofty position. Mm -hmm. But he says, when you say no nukes, no war, you're you're telling yourself, you know, it's it's not addressed to others; it's addressed to yourself. Mm. You know, That's fascinating. And then, then there's this little pathway that leads down from the from the um, the courtyard, mm -hmm. goes down into kind of an alley area. And there, right underneath this ten-foot monument, is a vault, and it's uh, it's got uh, like metal doors. And so after he explained the monument to us, he took us down, opened the vault, and I guess you know he had already prepared for our visit. And so he had inside there's about maybe ten iron uh, like lock, like foot lockers, okay, with uh, you know doors mm -hmm. you know, that open up like this. And so he had one open already, and he said, "In this vault contains the uh, uh, the remains, the remains of some ten to twenty thousand people who what died they, because of the bomb." Yes, at, at Nagasaki. Wow. And uh, so he had one of them open, and he, you know, and there was a, a skull sitting there, mm -hmm. and some other bones. Most of it's ash, but mm -hmm. uh, you know, some bones sitting there. And he, and he tells our kids, he says, well, I'm sure that you've seen, you know, bones, you know, human bones before, but uh, you can tell, you know, by looking, you see that the color, color is different. It's a lot darker. That's because of the radiation? Yes. Uh -huh. Right. Wow. And, uh, you know, and it was interesting because uh, we spent three days in Kyoto going through a retreat, and then we visited uh, one other place before going to Nagasaki. And every time that we would enter a temple or, you know, sit for a service, I would have to remind the kids to put their hands together in gasho. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and so uh, they'd just be sitting there and say, okay, everyone gasho, and then they'd all do it. Well, when we went to that vault and, and he opened the doors for us, all of the kids just, you know, naturally and automatically put their hands together and bowed. Paying respect. Yeah. Wow. And uh, and my son happened to be on that particular tour. And right after that, we went to the museum. 
went through, you know, the, the, the you know, the exhibits there. And that evening, um, uh, we were having dinner, and my son says to me, he says, uh, you know, I, I, uh, today was a, a life-changing day for me. And uh, I couldn't, uh, you know, I had absolutely no appetite. Uh, yeah, I mean, even now, you know, I basically have lost my appetite, and I just can't help, you know, but think about what happened, uh, what, 55 years ago. Yeah. And, and another thing was we were going through the museum, and uh, I guess the priest, when he was explaining um, the, the uh, monument, he said, we didn't put this up uh, uh, to um, criticize the United States or to say say who was right or wrong. You know, this is just to say that you know these are the, this is an example of the cruelty that human beings can inflict upon each other. Yeah. And it's not to you know choose sides or anything. Mm-hmm. And so then we go to the museum and we're going through the to, through the exhibits. And one of the older kids, he was a college student already, comes up to me and he says, uh, "Sensei, why is it wrong for us to hate the Americans who did this?" Because uh, he was just filled with hate, yeah. even though he's an American himself. You know. yeah. I mean, he's, he was filled with hate for those who made those decisions. Sure. But I, you know, I told him, I said, uh, well, it's not, you know, it really is uh, uh, an example of, uh, you know, how, how, how cruel we can be to each other. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that, uh, you know, therefore these people are right. You know, and and the Japanese, whether it's Hiroshima or Nagasaki, they're they're very careful. Uh, they'll point out all of the facts. You know, the one of the things that I really appreciate is how they point out how many nuclear arms. You know, like say the United States has. Uh, you know, they have this one that's really it's like this. Um, it's a video you know, that they show, and they say the first one was built here, and then the second one here. And then Russia came along, and then France came along, and you know, and so they point out all of the nuclear weapons that have been built that still exist, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, you know how dangerous that is. Yeah. Uh, but we just really don't think about it unless it's pointed out to us. Like yeah. That. Now we have Pakistan and right. India, yeah. yeah, and Iran mm-hmm. seems to want to have one. I don't that's know if right. that's the truth yeah. or not, but. But everybody seems to want one, mm-hmm. and and I think we've forgotten uh, what they're used for, right? And what happens when we do mm-hmm. use them? And and uh, as far as I can tell, when it comes to war, there aren't any winners. Mm-hmm. Everybody's a loser. Yeah. yeah, so I really wish that um, uh, you know the leaders of all of the countries, yeah. President Bush, you know, first of all, but you mm-hmm. know, all of them could go maybe together. Yeah. You know? And go through both Hiroshima and Nagasaki, yeah. and see, you know, see, uh, just experience for themselves, yeah. you know, the stories that are continuing to be told. Mm. And and like you said a few minutes ago, you said, well, there's not much I can do mm-hmm. uh, myself. Mm-hmm. I'm just one person. But but like the inscription mm-hmm. on the monument says, no war. Mm-hmm. So what we can do, I suppose, mm-hmm. is tell ourselves, that's right, right. no war. Yeah, that's right. And no nukes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I want to thank you very much for this interview because it, it's special to me that you were able to take time out of your busy schedule and sit down with me and talk. And I'm sure people listening are going to be uh, uh, taken by uh, what you had to say and, and how you said it. 
and and hopefully if anybody's interested in uh, uh, learning more about Buddhism they'll feel less anxious about that now and realize that Buddhist temples are uh, are places where everybody comes uh, everybody uh, uh, there aren't everybody I guess seems to uh, I, I want to say this correctly um, Buddhists seem to be everywhere Mm-hmm. that uh, there's no stereotype of what a Buddhist is mm-hmm. and, and Buddhist temples are open to everybody who's interested in Buddhism mm-hmm. and um, do you have a website? yes and um, could you give us the address of your yes. website? Uh, it's www.hhbt-la.org uh-huh. and the HHBT stands for Higashi Honganji Buddhist Temple LA is Los Angeles. And if they go to the website, will mm-hmm. they be able to find the schedule of the temple here? Yes. Uh-huh. And and the events that are occurring? Yes. And would they uh, would you uh, feel comfortable in saying come on by if they're yes. so if they so desire? With no reservation. Wonderful. Yes. Well thank you. Well thank you again and, well, thank and you. I hope our paths cross uh, soon so we yes. can have another discussion. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, that's it. That was my interview with Reverend Nori Ito, a Buddhist priest at a Pure Land Temple in downtown Los Angeles. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like more information on his temple, please visit their website, www.hhbt-la. That's Harold Harold Boy Tom Dash. LA.org. If you'd like more information on me, please visit my website, kusala.info. K U S A L A.info. If you'd like to listen to some of the past podcasts and see a couple videos I have posted on the internet, please visit my webpage, dharmatalks.info. That's dharmatalks.info. And if you'd like to email me, my email address is kusala at urbandharma.org. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering. <laughs>